Um, like I said before, my name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors on staff here and uh, privileged to uh, get to be with you this morning. Um, we are, uh, as you know, in the middle of this series called Dangerous Generosity. And uh, for the last four weeks, we've been uh, looking at our motto. And you may not know this, but our church is a motto. Um, it's be prepared. No, that's the wrong motto. It's, um, it's a church for your heart, your head, and your hands. And we as a, as a teaching team kind of wrestled with this idea of what if we looked at this idea of de- generous, dangerous generosity and looked at it and said, what would it be like to be dangerously generous in our heart? In the last four weeks, we looked at worship and how to love others and to have a heart that is generous towards God. In the next four weeks, we're going to look at this idea of how are we generous with our intellect, have intellectual generosity. And then we'll wrap it up and move into Easter with how are we generous with our lives. So this morning, we're going to kick off the uh, being intellectually generous portion of our time together. And you know you're off for a good start when I, I sent off my slides to Daryl, and uh, he sends me an email this morning. He's like, you spelled intelligence wrong. So I was not the right guy to start this up, but this is what the card that I drew. So we're going to get after it anyway. So this morning, when I think about this idea of being intellectually generous, um, and in a church context, I immediately go to this question, how theologically generous can we be? Right? We, want, we want to be smart people. We want to like, think about things deeply. And in a church context, we're going to think about God deeply. And theology right, is the study of God. So in a church context, how generous can we be theologically? And depending on your church background, like, that's a really freeing or a really terrifying statement. And this morning, we're going to lean into it. And I already know it's terrifying because this week I had lunch with Art and Jeff, and they like got after me. They like drilled me about my sermon. I'm like, it's only Tuesday. I haven't even thought about it yet. And they were after me because it's this dangerous tightrope of how theologically generous can we be while still being the church. And they already said they're going to fix it next week. So we're just going to strap on and, uh, and get after it. So, but before we look at theologically, how generous can we be, we're going to do another study. We're going to look at the, the Wilmology. Have you ever seen this study? Wilmology. It's the study of Wilma. And um, yeah, you like that study of Wilma? And uh, I don't know about if any of you are on the Facebook hype, but on Thursdays, it's like throwback Thursdays, and it's an opportunity to like show off pictures of your youth or, you know, when you first fell in love or whatever. My mom, you know, she's a little bit late on the bandwagon, but she got in on it. And uh, she posted this picture a couple weeks ago of my grandma. And this is my grandma and kind of the first group of, uh, of, of grandkids. You know, like all big families, there's all sorts of death and destruction that happens. And so there was a whole second group of, uh, of kids and second marriages and all that kind of stuff. But this is the, this is the top. This is the top kids in, uh, in our family. And uh, so this is Wilma, the lovely lady with the flower. Um, and this was at a labrucherie family reunion, I think. And I am that strapping young kid with the striped polo looking super comfortable. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so this is my grandma. And my grandma... She, uh, she's the daughter of a Swiss-Italian immigrant, and, uh, and they and her whole family moved to the Imperial Valley to about an hour and a half east in San Diego and became farmers, dairy farmers, now alfalfa farmers. And, uh, and what's interesting is for my grandma and her whole generation, they just saw the world change in so many ways. Um, but for her, like the, 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 the rhythm in which she grew up, she's Catholic, she's a farmer, and, uh, and the way it works is you kind of have this family. It's a nice family, right? And the kids take on the family traditions and the family job, and your kids marry people in the same kind of family clan. And in fact, my grandma and her sister married two brothers, right? Because that's how we did it. We're family. We're like, we want to have this like uniformed existence. And, uh, and so that's my grandma, and this is us, but my grandma had six kids. And once you start expanding your family, you lose control, right? You just can control less and less. And her kids um, are great kids, but they had this 
really wild spectrum of diversity going on with them. So this guy, this kind of chubby guy in the back, his name's Aaron. He's my, uh, he's the oldest grandson. He's the firstborn grandson from the oldest son. Like in a farmer's family, like he's the favored guy. I'm a little bitter about it, but that's okay. But he's the favored guy, right? Because his dad was the oldest son who kind of carried on the family tradition of farming. He's, he's a farmer still and owns all this land, and he's a farmer. This is the oldest son. And my mom, she was the oldest, but she's the oldest daughter, and she's like, forget this whole farming thing. So she married an urban Jewish guy and got out of town. So my grandma, this nice, uh, you know, Catholic Swiss Italian woman, now has her oldest daughter marrying this Jewish guy and me and one of the kids, and we move out of town, and I'm the suburban kid. So every Christmas I'd come down, I'm the suburban kid. And, uh, and I was always jealous of my oldest cousin, Aaron, because he was like the right? He had a daily relationship with his grandma. You know, they were daily living life. They were kind of doing all of life for all the time in kind of the, the history and tradition of our family. And I was just a suburban kid. And then, um, and then like the little girl there, that's my sister Allison, and that's back when she was cute. And then you have all these other kids that are going on there. Now, if you look, there's two brown kids, right? That's kind of interesting if you think of a good Catholic Swiss Italian family. Well, that's my cousin uh, Frank and my cousin, um, oh my goodness, I forgot, Christina. Because we're so tight. No, I'm just kidding. I, um, but what's interesting is one of my, one of my aunts, um, she couldn't have kids and uh, ended up marrying a, a son of one of the field hands. And I mean, he's a successful businessman now. But, you know, can you imagine 25 years ago marrying basically one of the migrant guys? And, uh, and my grandma saw th- these two kids and basically adopted them in and treated them like family. And you knew they were treated like family because whenever, like the Imperial Valley, it's 110 degrees. And if it ever got hot, hot outside and she was tired of it, she'd go outside. And they, these guys, they all had, we all had to sit outside together in the boiling heat. So I knew my grandma loved them uh, just like she loved me. And so when I think of like a family, when we think of the diversity of family, here's my grandma, right? And she loved all of her grandkids. Now, as a kid, I only saw my relationship with my grandma like this, and then I kind of judged my cousins and their relationship with my grandma because, you know, they, I always felt like my grandma loved them all better. And as we've talked, we all felt like she loved other people better because she just loved us. And, uh, and when I think about this idea of how generous can we be in our theology, I keep coming back to this metaphor, one of the great pictures of Scripture, that we are the family of God, that God is our heavenly Father, and we've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And in any large family there's going to start being complexities and differences. And so the way in which I know my grandma and understand my grandma is different than the way in which my cousin knows and understands my grandma, which is different than my mom, you know, who, who moved away and ended up being divorced, and my uncle who actually took on the family business. And like all these different people, right, all connected to my grandma who's one person but connected differently and had a different way in which they, they engaged with her. And so this morning I thought if we're going to think about how generous we're going to be in our theology— what if we kind of looked at this idea and recognized the truth that God is our heavenly father? We're all of his kids. We're all adopted into his family by Jesus Christ. But we all, therefore, are going to have these different ways in which we encounter him. And uh, so this morning, we're going to unpack a, a passage of scripture. If you have a Bible, old school, uh, you know, one with pages or on your phone or under the seat, or you just don't want to do anything and look at the screen, all great options. But Ephesians chapter 1, it says 3, but I meant to be 1, because like I said, typos and intellectual generosity. Uh, but... Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Let me read that one more time. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and with his will. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I thank you that you love us, that you see us, that you adopted us into your family through Jesus Christ. And what a huge, enormous, diverse family that we find ourselves in. And God, this morning as we wrestle with, as we kind of dance on the edge, as we think about how generous can we be in our understanding of you and still be family, God, I pray that you would be gracious to me, gracious to us, and gracious to one another as we strive to figure this out. Because at the end of the day, we want to be your family that gives you honor and glory forever and ever. Amen Amen. and amen. So we see right out of the gate that, um, that he predestined us for adoption. Since the beginning of time, God looked down and said, man, I'm going to have this humongous family, and I'm going to adopt people into my family through Jesus Christ. And our family is so huge, and it is. It's so diverse. And because God's invisible, and sometimes it's hard for me to understand, and I get that we're made in the image of God, and he, he used the family image, I think, for a reason. When I think about my own family, I was wrestling with, what would this look like in my own family? Because for me, I have this relationship with God that's like this. I understand God a certain way. I understand what God wants from me a certain way, and I'm all dialed in. But when I start looking around at my friends and people around me, they all understand God a little differently, and what they, God wants from them seems to be different. And, and part of me wants to either crush them or I'm intrigued by them a little bit, and I kind of live in this dance. And what I realized is that when I had some kids of my own, um, I thought as a parent, as a good parent, you treat all your kids the same. Right? A good parent treats all their kids the same. And I didn't realize what a chauvinist I was until I had a daughter because my first child was a son. And my firstborn son, a Kearns, you know, and he was going to be a certain way. He was going to live a certain way. I made him eat vegetables way more than he even wanted to. And I just crushed him because I wanted him to be my son. And then uh, and my daughter came along. I'm like, oh, you can eat whatever you want. She's my precious baby, you know. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I'm one of those dads. Um, but the truth is that we treat all of our, like, I think most of us treat our kids differently. You know, my son needs certain things from me. He understands the world a certain way. Like, I have these dreams for him. I want him to be a star baseball player. He's a little bit small. That's not gonna be, he's not going to be a star baseball player. He loves baseball. Um, but it turns out that he's incredibly smart. He is incredibly smart. And the way in which he engages the world is so different. Like, he wanted to debate evolution and creation in, like, second grade. I'm like, I'm not ready for this, you know? <laughs> he is, like, he is so smart for fun. He, like, memorizes math facts. He loves it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my goodness, you are so smart. And the things that I want to do as his dad to pour into and to help him live into how smart he is, is I'm parenting him a certain way. Now, because he is so smart, unfortunately, he also has some of my DNA where, like, he just does not get people. He doesn't see people. Like, he sees you, but, like, he doesn't see the heart of people, you know? You're, like, just kind of people, right? And you just kind of move in life. And my son, he just misses the heart of people all the time. And so as a parent, um, most, mostly for my wife, but you know, we want to parent him in a way that helps him see his heart, see the heart for other people, help him slow down and love people, right? Now, if I parented Mackenzie in the exact same way, it would be awful, right? Mackenzie doesn't have the same passion for school, but she has this huge passion for people. And so the way in which I parent Mackenzie has to fundamentally be different than how I parent Noah. And I think if we all parented the same, right, three out of our four kids would hate us because of it. Because every kid is fundamentally different. Every kid engages are their parents, and I think engages God differently. And so I wonder, 
at least this is how it is in my own parenting, and I wonder if adopted into God's family, what would it be like to live into this tension that God, um, it says right here, right, that He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So we have all uniquely encountered God, and God has this unique blessing for all of us. But if I'm going to bless Noah, you know, I might give him some Legos or we might go see a movie or something, but he doesn't want to watch a movie, right? If, I, if God gave us all the same blessing, I think a lot of us would miss it, but God sees us individually. He sees the core of who we are, and he blesses us individually. So what would it be if maybe God blesses us all differently? What would it be if maybe God even has different expectations of us because we're so different? That kind of messes with our mind because we all should live like me. That's how I, you know, you look like me and that's the expectation. But because we're so different, because we all approach this so differently, because we all have such different pasts and passions and abilities, we're all different. And what if God actually saw us individually and said, oh, I love you. You are my daughter. You are my son. And I have this blessing for you. I want this for your life. And it may be different than your other brother and your other sister, but I see you and I want this from you. And so as we think about how can we be generous in our theology, maybe if we, if we look at our own family systems to at least start with this idea that all of our sisters and brothers understand our earthly parents differently. And maybe our, all of our earthly, I mean our heavenly sisters and brothers, we understand our heavenly father differently because he's invisible and because we're so complex. And so I think if we're going to do that, maybe the first thing we need to do is maybe we just have to re- realize that we all encounter God differently. Now, the deal is, God is invisible, and we are immature, and those two things can cause us to go off the rails all the time. But the deal is, as Christians, we don't believe that God is just invisible, and we all just kind of wander out in the forest and hope our best to understand who, we, who He is, but we believe that God has revealed Himself through Scripture and revealed Himself most fully through Jesus Christ. And so when we want to understand what kind of God is this God we worship, who's our Heavenly Father— we look at the person of Jesus Christ, and we see that it is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ in which we're adopted into God's family, right? It says right here in verse 5 that he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It is Jesus who gives us access to the Father. It is Jesus who clarifies who God is. Now, on one hand, that sounds super great, but if you read through Scripture, it's actually really confusing because Jesus encounters everybody differently. Have you noticed that? All throughout Scripture, every interaction that Jesus has with somebody, it's based on that individual person's needs, that individual person's context, that individual person's brokenness and need, and Jesus sees exactly what they are and meets them where they are, right? Uh, the disciples, Peter and Matthew, they're at work doing their thing, and Jesus shows up at their place of employment and says, come and follow me. They're like, great. We're in. The woman caught in adultery, about to be executed for this offense, Jesus steps in the middle of the executioners and says, who are you to judge? Go and sin no more. That's it. Go and sin no more. That's nothing, right? Because the other people, to the rich young ruler, he shows up and Jesus says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have to the poor and come follow me. Right? Those are two different things because they're two different people with two different issues, two different levels of brokenness. And I just love that everywhere in Scripture, Jesus sees the individual person, he encounters that individual person and gives that individual person exactly what they need. And so if Jesus does that in real life, like in the Bible, then how much more would he do that for us? 
and for our sisters and brothers? And do we have space that the way in which Jesus is going to interact with us is going to be different? Now, Jesus isn't just a noble person. He isn't just a prophet. He isn't just a good teacher or a rabbi. But Jesus believed himself to be the Son of God, to be God in the flesh. In John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus said that I and the Father are one. And they, you know, like for you, like that's not a big deal. He didn't say anything. But if every time in Scripture you see these statements, the Jewish leaders were about to kill him. That means that because of for blasphemy, because Jesus, in their way that they talk, Jesus is equating himself with God. And the most offensive thing he said is in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says this, truly, truly, I tell you that before Abraham was, I am. If you're a good Jewish person, you know that I am is actually the Hebrew name for Yahweh, which is the name, the personal name of God that God gave to Moses when he called Moses to be his prophet and lead them out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt. And, and, and Orthodox Jews don't even say the name of the Lord. They don't even say God. Like, it's a big deal. And so for Jesus to show up and say, before Abraham, you're all sons of Abraham, you think that's great? Before he was, I am. And immediately they're going to go and wreck shop and kill him. And so we see that it is not, we, we don't have just this make-believe version of God, that our view of God, our understanding of God must be tempered by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only meets us exactly where we are, he not only is God in the flesh, but it is through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross that we actually have access, relational access to God, heart connection to God. I don't know about you if you've ever been in a fight with your parents or if, you have, if you're a parent, you've been in a fight with your kids and, uh, and they start slamming doors. You know, you, you have some altercation. If you're the parent, you're right. If you're the kid, you're right. But the kid, because like, what are they going to do? They can't get in their car and run away, at least not yet, hopefully. But they go to the room and they slam the door to say, listen, I'm right and you're wrong. And, uh, and then the parent has a choice. Well, I guess they're going to be grounded for their whole life is usually how it works in my house. But for the kid, right, there's always, and if you were this kid and you remember, there's always this sinking feeling like the parents in charge, they're, they're probably right, but you have some offense that you had and you just kind of reacted in some kind of violent, crazy way and you just locked yourself in a room. And if you've ever been in a fight with your parent, right, there's this relational separation. There's this brokenness, this uneasiness. You just, things aren't quite right between you and your parents. And I think of it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, when he forgave our sins, Jesus basically took the initiative. He opened the door of the slammed room and he comes in and he sits down on the bed and he says, I see you, I love you, I forgive you, let's start over. How cool if we had parents that would open the door and sit, that, sit down with us and restore relationship. And our offenses, I mean, it was costly. It cost Jesus his very own life. But because of that, the benefit of that is now he freely opens the door of our rebellion, sits down on our bed, offers us freedom, and offers us access to, to the Father. So when we think about this idea that we want to be adopted into the family of God through Jesus, we recognize that Jesus sees people and interacts with people based totally on their own unique situation, that Jesus is God, and that it is his work on the cross that actually allows us to be in relationship with him. Now, this last point, uh, it says that it was, uh, we are predestined into sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. How cool is it that God's pleasure and will is that we are a part of his family? It brings him such delight to have his kids be a part of his family. And what's interesting is our parents had huge dreams for us. Our parents actually knew things about them. We feel like from 14 on, they don't get us at all. But our parents, they seen us, they know us, they have these dreams for us. And we wanted to like wreck shop in our life and do whatever we want to figure things out. And our parents had to kind of just sit by and watch. But the truth is, if we were mature and we realized our parents actually loved us and had what's our best intentions in mind, 
right? Think of the amount of will, the goodwill and pleasure that would bring our parents to live most fully into the people that we're, we were created to be. And when I think about this, it's kind of a hard thing to understand that we, um, that God has a will for us. And we're always wrestling, like, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? And we think, I don't know. I don't have any answer for that. But here's this really weird thing. I think we actually do know what God's will for our life is. We've been around the church long enough. We have enough Bible knowledge. Even at the very top level, if right now I said, what is God's will for you right now? What's the thing? You would know there's something in your life, there's something on your heart that God actually has for you, but it's really pushed down so you don't really want to think about it. And I know that God's will is in us because we're smart people. And it's so hard to make decisions in our life because all decisions are emotionally based, right? Um, whenever we're confronted with a decision right in front of us, it's emotional, and we, we end up doing what we want, not what necessarily is right, because we're all caught up in the moment. But we all do know what the right thing is. And I know this to be true because a couple weeks ago with our high schoolers, we did this talk on dating, and it was powerful, mostly because I didn't say anything. They talked. They did the talk on dating. We talked about all the good and the bad and the ugly of it. And then we, uh, I, I was kind of nervous, but I sent them into small groups, and I said, you guys, you come up with the rules and advice of dating. Not for you, because you guys are so smart and mature and got all dialed in, but you guys do it for seventh graders. Imagine a seventh grade girl. Imagine your seventh grade sister. What dating advice would you give to the seventh grade girl? And they went to their small groups and they wrote up these things. And when they came back, all eight of them uh, shared their things. I learned some dirty words uh, that night too. It was really incredible. But they all said really incredible wisdom. Like, better wisdom than I could have ever given to them, they had for seventh grade girls. Because in them is wisdom. They know what the right thing to do is. But when you're emotionally in the moment, when you're emotionally charged, all of that goes out the window and you just do what seems right to you. So all of us know what God has for us. And if we don't know because we're so in the moment, we're a part of a Christian community that helps us work that thing out. And as we wrestle with this idea of intellectual generosity, we're going to have to keep coming back to this passage in Romans. It says this, Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. And so if we want to live in this idea of being generous in our theology and making space and seeing each other, we have to realize that each of us have been uniquely encountered God. That this God isn't some make-believe, imaginary, invisible God, but God revealed himself through Jesus. And God actually has a will and a plan and a pleasure for us. And we, most of us, know at least some of the baby steps are to do that. But maybe we need some other wise people to help walk through that with us. Now, this whole series, we've been wrestling this idea of dangerous generosity, and it is dangerous because all true generous things are costly. It's going to cost us something. If we're going to really make space for people on this path to know Jesus, no matter where their starting point is, it is going to cost us. And I think it's going to cost us three things. So the first thing it's going to cost us is we have to realize that we're not all the same. Now, you say, of course we have to realize we're not all the same. But I mean, you have to really own that we are not the same because in neutral, everybody is like me. Everybody sees the world like me. Everybody understands God like me. Everyone has had the same pain and sorrow and joys and successes as me. In neutral. And unfortunately, right, when I think about I'm going to preach a sermon or I think about, God, what do you have for our church? When I think, what what I really mean is, God, what do you have for a 40-year-old a middle-class white guy who's married and has two kids. 
what do you have for our church? That's what I see because that's me. That is who I am. It's the, it's the way that God made me. It's the way that I encounter God. It is me. But the deal is Christianity is way bigger, thankfully, than the way that God has met me, right? And we talk about this with our seniors in senior dinner, and everyone, they always have this huge chafing against the um, Western Christianity. Oh, we hate the church and we hate Christians because of Western Christianity. And we look around and look at all of that Western Christianity has done. But the truth is Christianity is the only religion. Jesus is the only person who has been relevant and who has impacted every culture, every context, every people group in the entire world. Now, the deal is the way in which Jesus has impacted them is totally different than how he has impacted me in our culture and our context. So when I think of me, Mern Covenant Church, I mean the middle-class white guy. No, I mean Mern Covenant Church. When I think, okay, that's how God meets us here. How differently is it that God meets the Christians who gather in the tenderloin with the Salvation Army and do compassion and mercy ministry all day, 24-7? How does Jesus show up to the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church down in Mississippi? How does God meet them in their context and their worldview and the people that they live with? How does Jesus show up for the um, underground church in China? and for the Christians who are doing it there, or for the Pentecostal revival that's happening throughout Africa, right? How does Jesus show up there? And it's going to be way different. And if we had a representative from each of those groups, like, we're all Christians? Because we all encounter Jesus differently. And I think it's helpful for us to realize that at Marine Covenant Church, we are not all the same. We think, oh, we're Marine Covenant Church, we're all like this. But in this church, in this service, across the row from you, we will realize we are not all middle-class white suburban guys with two, dad, two kids um, and a mortgage. We are single. We are divorced. We have a ton of kids. We can't have kids. We have adopted kids. We have gazillionaires. We have bankrupt people. We have special needs, both emotionally and physically and developmentally. We have ex-Catholic, ex-Jewish, ex-Muslim, ex-Buddhist, ex-everything. We have people that have, are in recovery on a whole number of different things. We have people who enforce the law. We have felons who have been busted by the law. And in our congregation, in this service alone, we have people from all over the world. In this room, we are all going to encounter God differently. And we need to realize that we are not all the same, as that is our starting point. The second one, I think, is increasingly more difficult. And the second one is that we must be open to learn from others. I found in my life, I'm really only open to those who understand God the way I do, but who've written a couple of books about it or a little bit further down the road, which is the way I understand God. I'll read and learn from those guys all day. But someone who understands God through Jesus differently than me, who encounters God differently than me, who's going to prod me like Art did last week to not be so orderly in my worship, right? Am I going to make space for that? Am I going to be humble and teachable and say, okay, Art's my pastor. I love him. He has a word for me. I'm going to try to be more expressive in my worship. I don't get that, but I'm going to lean into that because I want to be humble and teachable. We have to have an attitude of humility towards one another, to learn from each other, and to be open to one another. And then the last one is the most difficult. If we're going to realize we're not the same, if we must be open to one another, we have to move towards maturity. We cannot just sit and be crybabies and be like, Jesus didn't give me what I wanted, right? The thing that you're being a crybaby about, in community you realize, oh my goodness, I should not be a crybaby about that. Because there are people who have way bigger things to be crybabies about. We move towards Christ. One of the saddest things was uh, when my grandma died and we all went to her funeral and we were all joking about some different stories and telling stories. There was this group of old women sitting in the front and uh, my mom's like, 
who are those guys, you know? Because my mom, she's the oldest daughter. She was like best friends with my, with my grandma, at least that's what she thought. And uh, one, of my other, one of her other sisters said, oh, that's Wilma's tap dancing group. <laughs> I know, my grandma was a tap dancer, but no one knew, especially my mom, because my mom, right, she saw her mom through a weekly phone call who my mom just oozed love on her. And, you know, my mom went through tough stuff, just oozed love on her. But because my mom never, like, moved past some of that stuff, she never even knew some of this stuff about my grandma. And then after the funeral, they all started rumbling through their journals, which, by the way, you should chuck all of your journals before you die. But they started going through all of her journals, and they realized, oh, my goodness, my grandma was this deep and complex woman. There were things and burdens that she carried that no one knew until after she died. But most of us are just selfish kids and we just want our parents to write us a check or give us our thing and we just are selfish and immature. But if we're going to be all that God has for us, we have to move towards maturity. We have to understand that God, who's our heavenly father and we're adopted through Jesus, doesn't just give us personally the blessings that we need, which he does, thankfully, but God longs for us to be a part of his kingdom the expansion of his will, to understand his depth, his complexities, all the ways in which he is. And we can only do that if we grow up, if we mature. And the only way that we're going to do that is if we're willing to be in relationship and fellowship with people who understand and see different angles of who our God is. Because then we will get to be the church that God has for us. And what a testimony to our context that one of the most diverse groupings of people can genuinely love each other because we have been loved by our Heavenly Father. Amen and amen. All right. Um, I would like to offer a benediction um, as one of the passages of Scripture because I think the only way forward in this is if we live in this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it first, and then it'll be our blessing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We are sitting here in this room, not because we have a great building, not because we have a killer worship team, and not because I'm such an incredible speaker, although you didn't know I was speaking because Art and Jeff did a great job or a great children's ministry. All those things are not why you are here today. You are here because for 2,000 years, faithful women and men who have known and loved Jesus have passed that on to the people after them, to the people after them. And those people are from every culture, every tribe, every nation. They have all encountered Jesus in totally wild and different ways. And we are this unique expression here. And all of them are in this gigantic stadium looking down at us, cheering us on, going, this is our time, 2014, Marin Covenant Church. This is your time to be the people of God in this context. And they are, we are surrounded by them. And their call, the call of Scripture, is that we fix our eyes on Jesus and that we run after him because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. So if you'd stand for this blessing, and, uh, and then we'll call it quits. So Marine Covenant Church, right here, right now, in 2014, this grouping of us. Therefore, since you have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who has given us access to our Heavenly Father and who deserves all the honor and the glory 
and the power forever and ever. Amen and amen.